Good afternoon. It is a joy and a blessing to be here today. Uh, we're very thankful to have many visitors with us. We want you to feel welcome. Uh, we hope that uh, our, our love for one another, our love for the Lord and His Word is, is evident among us. We hope you'll be encouraged by, by the things that we study today. If your Bibles aren't already open to Malachi chapter 1, we ask that you'll open them there now and follow along. God's Word is what has the power uh, to change us, to transform us, to make us into who He wants us to be. And so that's where we want the focus to be today. If I were to ask you what books of the Bible you are most familiar with, uh, Malachi probably wouldn't be at the, the top of most people's list. It's not a book that we study a, a whole lot. But I hope that by spending some time in this book, we, we can leave here more familiar with its message uh, and with a greater appreciation of the, the power of God's message within this book. Uh, I have in the past tried to uh, take one lesson to do an entire overview of the book of Malachi, but there's just too much in there to do that. And so what I want us to do today is just focus on Malachi chapter 1. And I hope as, as time passes uh, in the next couple months uh, to come back and do chapter 2 through 4 as well. But as Rick helpfully stated for us, if we had to come up with a theme for the book of Malachi, we might call it God's message to a rebellious child. Why is that? Because you see Israel talking back to God Throughout the book, from the very start, chapter 1, we see this many times. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? You look down in verse 6, he calls them priests who despise his name and says, but you say, how have we despised your name? You present defiled food on my altar, verse 7, but you say, how have we defiled you? Continuously, and we'll see this in chapter 2 through 4 as well, Israel is always answering back. Oh yeah, well you, you say this is the case, but no, we, we don't think it is. And so, while I think the book of Malachi has a lot of powerful messages for parents, as we consider how we deal with our children, we look at how God dealt with his rebellious child, today we're going to primarily focus on its message to us as God's children and our relationship with him as our father. And I think it will have some powerful and rich messages for us as well. Starting off at the very beginning of this book, God's initial message in verse 2 is, I have loved you. God, before he gets into rebuke, before he gets into correction or discipline, he leads with love. Before uh, anything else, God wants to assure them of his love for them. And yet, as is going to be characteristic of Israel, they, they question immediately. You've loved us, really? How, how have you loved us? You think about the context of the book of Malachi. Malachi is not only the last book in the Old Testament literarily, but also chronologically. Uh, it here is written during the time period that Israel had been taken into captivity, uh, the northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon. And now they've come back finally from captivity, but not most of them, just, just a, a lowly remnant and they're rebuilding the, the temple, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, but it is just a shadow of its former glory. And so as they look at themselves as a nation, they look where they're at, they're questioning God, you've loved us, well then why are we in this situation? If you've really loved us, then, then why uh, is this remnant so small? Why, why all the judgment against us? But can you imagine a child reacting to a parent's discipline that way? 
You know, if, if, if you need to punish your child, you need to, to ground them or take away some privilege or, or inflict some punishment upon them, and they said, well, if, if you really loved me, you wouldn't do that to me. Is that true? No, we, we love our children enough to discipline. But that's the attitude that Israel has here. If you love us, then why have you done all this to us? Then why have you allowed us to be taken into captivity? Why have you allowed us to be punished in this way? Is this sometimes how we act towards God, though? We say, well, God, if you really loved us, you wouldn't allow X, Y, or Z to happen. You, you wouldn't have allowed my, my friend to get cancer. You wouldn't allow my, my parent to get dementia. You wouldn't allow me to go through this suffering. If you really loved me, you'd, you'd let me live the way that I want to live, the way that makes me happy. Is that our attitude towards God? But God has an answer for Israel. Starting in verse 2, he says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and rebuild up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. What's God's point here? God here draws their attention towards Edom, the descendants of Esau. Uh, they, back in their ancestry, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had a brother named Esau, and the Edomites were his descendants. And God says, you want to know that I love you? Look at Edom. Let me show you what your sins deserve. Let me show you what, what you should be like. The Edomites, as well, had been judged in the time period of Babylon when they came in and, and wiped out many nations in that area. But Edom was never going to rebuild. Edom was never going to come back and, and rebuild as a nation. And yet God, despite Israel's unworthiness, despite the fact that they had sinned against them, is allowing them an opportunity to come back. His remnant to come back and be restored. And so God is saying, you want to know that I love you? Look at what you deserve. And look at what I have given. I think if we think of that in, in terms for us as well, when we look at the discipline of the Lord, um, God often disciplines us to teach us, to refine us, to woo us back to him. And if we would simply look at what it is that we deserve, we'll come to appreciate just how much God truly loves us. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What we deserve is death, separation from God, eternal punishment. And yet, what is God's gift? God's gift is his own son taking on that death, taking our punishment upon the cross so that we could be saved, so that we might have eternal life. You want to know how much God loves you? Look at what we deserve upon the cross. We deserve, we have earned death. Are we still breathing, though? Is our heart still Beating that within itself is evidence that God hasn't given us what we deserve. 
And He's sustaining our physical life so that we might come to have spiritual life in Him. Sometimes when we look at the evil and the suffering in the world, we say, well, why, why doesn't God come in and just wipe it all out? Why doesn't God come in and judge all the evil in the world? Well, is that really what we want him to do? If he did, where would you and I be? No, we are sinners in need of salvation. If God came in and wiped out all hint of evil, none of us would be here right now. And yet God delays in coming in judgment against the evil of this world because, not because he's malevolent, but because he is merciful. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, talking about the second coming of Jesus, this promise that he is going to come again and judge the world and take his people unto himself, says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. He hasn't forgotten about his promise to come and judge the world. But he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why is it that God allows evil to remain within the world? Because he is patient. He's giving us a chance to repent. We've made this point before, but we'll make it again. The reason the sun rose this morning is because God still wants somebody to be saved. That's the reason we're here. If it wasn't for that, God would go ahead and fold up the book. He would take everybody and judge them right now. But God is being patient. He is allowing us breath and life so that we might turn to him and so that we might be saved. We want to question God's love for us. Just look at his patience. Look at it, what it is that we deserve. And sometimes when, when we pray for things and we want God to do things in our life and he doesn't allow them, we, we can be like the, the 13-year-old who is upset because his parent won't give him the car keys to drive. Now, it's not that God is just some killjoy, that he's some malevolent dictator. He doesn't want us to die. <laughs> he cares about us. He wants what is best for us. And he is patiently enduring our childish temper tantrums, and hope that we might come to maturity and be spared the consequences of our foolish choices in the end. And God allows suffering. He allows judgment. He allows discipline so that we might be pointed towards him. C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, and shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Our suffering, our, our, our discipline is shouting to us that we need God. No, this broken world isn't going to fill us up. We need something more, and God is pointing us to him. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. We're told, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. God's not going to be a negligent father. God's not going to stand back and see us in our immaturity and in our need of being taught, of being disciplined, and fail to do so. No, God is going to be diligent to discipline us, to allow us to go through times of suffering and trial that we might be refined, that we might turn to him. And that's exactly what God was doing for Israel here. As they looked around them and they saw God's judgment upon them as a nation that they were taken into captivity, God did all of that, not just to bring the hammer down on them, but to teach them to 
refine them, to woo them back towards him, that they might come to see their sin as what it truly was. And as he is now offering them an opportunity to return, to come back to the land, to rebuild in a way that Edom never did, he's wanting them to appreciate his love and his mercy for them. Do we appreciate God's love for us? But after God begins with this message of love for his people, of mercy even in their judgment, he now goes on to address the sin problem uh, that really has has caused all of this and the sin problem that is, is raising its ugly head once again, even in the remnant of Israel. Where is my respect? Verse 6, if you look here in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? Here, God deserves honor, God deserves respect, he deserves reverence because of who he is. God is a father. God is a master in a, a sense much greater than any earthly father. You think about God being our, our father, giving birth to us, first of all, as our creator, but then also as our, our savior. You, you might have heard the phrase before uh, from uh, an earthly parent, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Well, brethren, that is much truer with God than it is with any earthly parent. Now, God is the one who knit us together in the womb. God is the one who breathed a part of himself into us to give us an eternal spirit that dwells within our bodies. Yes, God is a father in a much greater sense. And not only that, but as it applies to Israel, God was the father of the nation of Israel. He is the one who gave birth to them as a nation, who brought them out of bondage in Egypt, who led them into the wilderness, took care of them, guided them into their home in Canaan. God had purchased them. In that sense, he is also their master. He possesses all power and authority. He is ruler of the universe, but he had redeemed them out of Israel. He had... had paid the price for them, that they now as a nation belonged to him. And in the same sense, through the blood of Jesus, we have been purchased. Not only is God our Father, he is our master. He owns us. We are his property because he paid the price of Jesus' blood. And so if we don't honor God as a father, we at least need to fear him as our master. And yet... Here, Israel, and perhaps us, are failing to give God the honor that he deserves as father, as master. They say there at the end of verse 6, but you say, how have we despised your name? Here, when it comes to finding fault with God, they're very quick to find fault and to say, well, you, you know, show us evidence of this love that you have for us. But then when it comes to their own faults, well, they're very quick to, to pass that off to say, well, we're not despising you. Is that how we are many times? That we're very quick to point out faults in somebody else, that, that if there's some conflict, well, it's always their problem. It's not my problem. 
There's always some extenuating circumstances that, that make it to where it's, it's not my fault, I'm, I'm the victim. Well, that's Israel's attitude here. Now, God, it's, it's your lack of love for us. It's not our problem. We're, we're not doing anything wrong. We haven't despised your name. But God gives them proof. Just as he gave them proof of his love, he gives them proof of their irreverence. Read with me in verse 7 and 8. He says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. God says, you want proof? Here, exhibit A. You can almost imagine him taking these, these sacrifices, these maimed and blind animals, and throwing them onto the table and saying, here, this is my proof. Israel's true attitude towards the Lord became evident in the type of worship that they were offering to him. They were worshiping. They were going through the motions. They were checking the checkbox, but they were bringing to God the blind and the lame and the sick. They knew that worship was important, but you see, God ultimately was not interested in their religious checklist. He was interested in their hearts. And the type of worship that they were bringing was reflecting a disregard for God. God had made it very clear under the Old Covenant what type of offerings, what type of worship he desired. I'm going to turn my Bible back to Leviticus chapter 22. Feel free to turn there with me uh, and keep your Bibles marked in Malachi 1. In Leviticus chapter 22, God gave some very specific requirements for the type of sacrifices that were to be offered. I'll start reading in verse 20. Leviticus 22 verse 20, we read, Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or for a free will offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or have a running sore or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar to the Lord. In respect to an ox or a lamb which has an overgrown or stunted member, you may present it for a free will offering, but for a vow it will not be accepted. Also anything bruised or crushed or torn or cut you shall not offer to the Lord or sacrifice in your land. Nor shall you accept any such from the hand of a foreigner for offering as the food of your God. For their corruption is in them. They have a defect. They shall not be accepted for you. You see, God was very specific about what type of sacrifices he desired. He's very clear that he wasn't interested in Israel's leftovers. He wanted the very best that they had to offer. And so much so that they would have had to put a great deal of thought and effort into making sure that these sacrifices were the best that they had to offer to the Lord. You can imagine uh, the Israelites going out and looking through their flock and, and looking through the, the wool of, of these sheep making sure that there weren't any scabs, weren't, weren't any skin conditions. You can see them going out with, with their measuring stick and, and making sure that there weren't any legs or, or limbs that were too long or too short. No, they wanted the, the perfect sacrifice to the Lord. Why, why is that? Why, why did God care if it had a scab? Why did God care if it had a, a, a limb that was too long or too short? 
you know, did, did those animals just not, not taste as good? Uh, did, did they not burn as well or, or, or not smell as good to, to God? Is that what it's about? No, they reflected something about the heart of the worshiper. It wasn't about the animal itself, per se. It was about what that reflected about their attitude, about their hearts. God wanted them to learn the principles of reverence, to give him their very best. God here in Malachi chapter 1 makes the point at the end of of verse 8. Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? It's not that Israel didn't understand this concept. It's not that you and I can't understand this concept. But many times we think, well, when it comes to worship, when it comes to God, the the rules kind of change. You know, it's it's different. As long as my heart's in the right place, all those outward things, they, they don't matter. No, God says that the outward should be a reflection of what is in our heart. And we understand this when we give gifts to other people. If I go out and buy a gift for you, I'm not going to be rummaging around my house looking for all the things that I have no use for anymore. Say, aha, I'm not going to use this. They can have it. Is that what I'm going to do when I give a gift? No, I'm going to go out and I'm going to try to find something that is going to be meaningful and, and helpful and valuable to you. Imagine if you came over to my house for supper and I set out a platter of all the pizza crusts that I had saved up over the last month that I didn't eat. Would you be very pleased with that? Besides hygienic reasons, uh, of course, you, you wouldn't be pleased with that. No, I, I, I ate all that I wanted to and what was ever left over, I put that out so that you could have it. No, you'd be disgusted by that. And yet, is that what we're doing in our service to the Lord. Granted, we, we're not bringing animals to sacrifice to him today, but these principles apply no less for us, brethren. We need to be giving the best of our energy, the best of our time, the best of our effort and attention and resources, not to our personal interests and pursuits, and then whatever I happen to have left over, well, then God can have that. No. We need to be giving God the very best that we have to offer. If, if no earthly governor, if no earthly employer would accept the type of service that we're offering to God, then we need to, to give some thought to how it is that we are worshiping him. What does it say when we wouldn't dream of being late to a meeting at work, but we never seem to be able to make it to the assembly on time? What does it say when we aren't willing to cut our TV package from our budget, but we will lower our contribution to the Lord's work when finances get tight? What does it say when we are diligent to make sure that our kids get their homework done, but if they don't have time for their Bible lesson, well, that'll just have to wait? What does it say when we'll stay up late into the night playing video games, but we can't seem to stay awake the next day at worship services? What does it say when I can sit in the theater for two or three hours watching the newest action movie? But if the sermon goes a little over 30 minutes, then it's just too much to bear. What does it say when we clear out our schedule to make time for a family vacation, but our schedules can't seem to accommodate the meetings of the Lord's Church? 
God invites us to make these types of comparisons. As he makes this reference to how we would serve a governor, how we might serve a teacher, an earthly employer, whoever it might be, God makes a comparison to how we serve him. And if our standard of service in some earthly relationship exceeds our standard of service to God, there's a big problem. Now, our service to God needs to be the standard by which all other relationships are measured. It needs to be where our greatest devotion lies, our our greatest energy, time, effort, interest, attention, resources, all of that needs to be given first and foremost to God. God doesn't want our leftovers. He wants our very best. And we see God's attitude towards this type of worship in verse 10. Of Malachi chapter 1, verse 10, we read, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. God says, you might as well close the gates. You might as well board up the door. Everybody go home, because I'm not interested in what it is that you're offering. Is that what God would say to us? Half-hearted worship, brethren, is worse than no worship at all. Giving God our leftovers is not just insufficient, it is insulting. It is accomplishing the polar opposite of what worship is intended to accomplish. Instead of expressing reverence, half-hearted worship is expressing disregard. Instead of expressing devotion, it expresses disdain. We need to give some serious thought not only within the assemblies, but in our day-to-day life, and what type of service, what type of worship we are offering to the Lord. And we see here in Malachi 1 that the type of worship that we offer is going to influence others around us. Look in verse 11. God says, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. And a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 14, he says, But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Even all the way back in verse 5, the Lord said, The Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. Why is it that he continues to focus on this idea of his name being feared and honored among the nations? The one point there is, if if you're not going to honor me, somebody else is. But I think as well, Israel's worship that they were offering to the Lord was not only sending a message of disdain towards God, it was sending that message to the nations around them. If, If... If the other nations were to look at the type of worship that Israel was offering, what kind of God do you think that would have looked like they were serving? Did the type of worship they bring communicate the greatness of the God that they were serving? What about us? What does our worship indicate to others about the type of God that we serve? Imagine for a moment that I went out and bought a gift, and you didn't know necessarily who this gift was for uh, or, or what the occasion was. All that you had to go on was observing the gift itself. 
what from the gift might you conclude about the relationship that I share with the person that I'm giving it to? I'm going to show you a few examples here. If I were to uh, get some chew toys, so, some ropes there, what, what type of recipient do you think I might be giving that gift to? Well, hopefully it's not my wife. Uh, hopefully it's my dog, right? Or if I got some, some baby clothes, you know, you might conclude something about who I'm giving that gift to, right? I got some school supplies. Maybe I'm giving them to, to a teacher or a student. Or if I got that ring, I think most of us would conclude pretty quickly what type of recipient uh, a ring like that would receive. We call it an engagement ring, right? Well, think about that same concept. If somebody looks at the service that I am giving to the Lord, what does it communicate to them about the relationship that I share with him? What does it communicate to them about the, the nature, about the character of this God that I am serving? Does the type of worship that I bring communicate that this is the king of the universe? That this is almighty God? That this is the creator? Well, if it's just my leftovers, you know, leftovers is what I feed to my dog when I'm, I've eaten all that I want. Is that the type of God that I'm serving? You know, if, if I view my worship just as a checklist and did that, did that, what, what type of God does that communicate that I'm serving? You know, that, that, that's what I do for maybe an employer or a teacher getting my assignments turned in. If, if my service like the Israelites here in chapter 1 and verse 13 is just a, a tiresome chore that I have to do uh, and I'm dragging myself to go through it just out of a sense of obligation, what does that communicate about the kind of God that I'm serving? Is it just like some earthly employer in a job that I don't really enjoy? No, the type of worship that we need to bring is a wholehearted, passionate, giving of ourselves, giving of our best of our hearts poured out to the Lord. And when we do that the way that we should, it should readily communicate to all those around us that this God that we serve is a great God, a God that deserves our very best, a God that deserves the type of relationship that, that far exceeds any earthly relationship here in this life. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. We're commanded, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What does God want? Under the new covenant, God doesn't just want the best of our animals. No, he wants our lives on the altar. Each and every day, my, my time, my energy, the, the air that I breathe is, is an offering to God. He wants all of me. In Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and 30, Jesus says, The foremost command of all, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Brethren, Jesus says this is the first and greatest commandment. If we don't get this right, then it doesn't matter how much else we get right. We need to make sure that first and foremost, we are honoring God as he deserves to be honored. And that needs to show day in, day out, as we 
seek to do his work, as we seek to bring him praise, as we come together in this assembly to praise our God, we need to make sure that we're not falling into the same trap that the Israelites were. So what about you today? God loves you. And though your rebellion and disobedience deserve death, he took that death for you, sending his own son to die upon the cross. He has given you the greatest gift imaginable. What gifts are you bringing him in return? Are you giving him your leftovers? Are you just going through the motions? Are you giving him all that you have to offer? Are you being a living sacrifice? Are you laying your entire life on the altar of service to him? That's what he deserves. He is our father in a greater sense than any earthly father ever could be. He is our master in a greater sense than any earthly master. He is the ruler of the universe, the creator of the world. Let's reflect that in the way that we serve him. Maybe you recognize today that you're not giving God the type of service that he deserves. What are you going to do about it? Don't leave here today without making the necessary change. God in his grace, despite how you have dishonored him, despite how you have rebelled against him, wants you as his child. He wants to spend eternity with you. Are you willing to turn to him? Are you willing to lay your life on the altar of worship to him? Maybe you've never made that commitment. By God's grace, if you're willing to, you can bury your old man of sin in baptism. You can be raised to walk in newness of life. Are you willing to make that commitment today? If there's any way that we can help you in your relationship with the Lord, if there's any way that we can pray for you or help you as, as you seek the Lord, we want to do that. That's why we're here. And so if you have any need that you need to make known at this time, we ask that you let us know as we sing.